Sam Lederman, and you're listening to ASU Law Student Radio. Today I spoke with Professor Kaiponanea Matsumura, ASU Law professor and expert on family law and the intimate relationships it governs. We discussed the history of marriage, the rights that flow from it, and the rise of non-marital relationships. Take a listen. Welcome, Professor Matsumura. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And yes, I'm glad to have you here. This is a, a very competent contracts professor we have with us today, everyone. First, I'd like to start off with a brief overview of the history of marriage, where it started and how it has changed and become the institution we know today. Great. Thanks. Well, um, I want to mention uh, that although I was Sam's contracts professor, um, I research and write in the area of family law and kind of family formation through the use of assisted reproductive technologies. So um, I'm really excited to be talking to people about marriage and the family unit today and hopefully to build interest among people in taking family law and family law related courses. And I would say, even if you don't intend to practice family law, um, it's still such a wonderful thing to learn more about, given that we all come from families and have families and maybe don't realize the extent to which um, the social structures in which we live actually have legal ramifications. So I'm pretty sure that um, we're going to be discussing that today. And so the first question I just got was about the history of marriage. Um, You know, so marriage has a very long history, you know, in the West, in the Western tradition, um, a lot of laws date back to Roman times and probably even earlier. Um, And, you know, from those Roman times, we get principles like marriage is a contract. Marriage is premised on the consent of the two spouses. And um, although, you know, there have been variations in that general thought or idea, that's remained with us for a couple thousand years in the West. Um, But I'm going to jump ahead because there's, you know, a whole lot of information on Roman marriage law and medieval marriage law, and some of it's relevant to us, but not all of it is. But we basically inherited our laws in the United States from England, you know, when when colonies were established. And of course, um, there are other sources of law um, that have been less influential in the development of state family law. So for example, you know, Spanish and French law Um, influences community property states, of which Arizona is one. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, Native American family law didn't have as much of an influence on the law that generally applies to um, us through our states, basically. Um, But, you know, the marriage, the institution of marriage that we inherited from the English Um, which we kind of call common law, has had several features. And the most important one was this concept called coverture, um, which comes from the French word for covering. Um, A wife was known as femme couvert. She was covered by her husband. And generally, the principle was one of marital unity, 
that when two people got married, they came, became a single legal entity um, under the control and authority of the husband. And um, this person's, uh, the husband's authority extended in other way areas as well. So for example, he was the head of the household. And so if the household included servants, he was able to exercise control over those servants. Um, same goes for children. Children were thought of as the property of the husband until they reached the age of um, majority. So um, there was a tremendous amount of authority in the husband as head of the household. Um, as a consequence, wives lost um, legal personhood, essentially. They were folded into the legal identities of their husbands. So, I mean, if you think back to the founding of our republic, I mean, women could not vote and they didn't attain the right to vote until several hundred years later. Um, but they could also not, wives couldn't enter into contracts. Largely, they couldn't sue or be sued in civil suits. Um, they couldn't even be criminally prosecuted for many of their acts um, because they were thought of as non-persons. Um, the responsibility for those acts was the husband's. And so, um, you know, if a, a, a wife committed a crime, there were some instances in which she was answerable for her conduct, for example, if she killed her husband. But a lot of times the husband would be charged for the crime based on the wife's conduct. Same thing if there was a tort. I mean, you know, um, loss of consortium, there are various tort claims that arose because of the deprivation of the hu husband's right to the companionship of his wife. Um, women couldn't enter into contracts, our wives couldn't enter into contracts, they certainly couldn't enter into contracts with their husband. Because, you know, if you think about you yourself now as a as a single individual, you can't enter into a binding agreement with yourself. And so if the woman was folded into her husband's legal existence, then they couldn't enter into an agreement. Okay, and there are many other kind of consequences that flowed from coverture, like, um, marital testimonial privilege, et cetera, okay? But um, generally speaking, that was the state of the law um, at, in colonial times and really into and throughout the 19th century. And so um, we started to see changes over time um, unraveling the doctrine of coverture. So for example, Starting in the mid 19th century, states began to pass married women's property acts, which allowed women to hold prop wives to hold property in their own names. Um, but you know that process wasn't complete until the 20th century. So there were still states at the beginning of the 20th century in which wives could not hold property in their own names. Obviously, once the wife is able to hold property in her own name, that um, puts her on a more equal or level playing field with husbands, you know, so that's one example of the dismantling of coverture and the raising up of wives to be on a more equivalent status with their husbands, you know, obviously the right to vote, acquiring the right to vote was critical to putting her on a more even playing field with her husband. Um, but there are various, you know, decisions like there are Supreme Court decisions from the 1870s that prohibited or upheld, for example, the state of Illinois prohibition on women practicing law. And so 
when those types of prohibition fell, women were able to enter into the workplace because they owned property or were able to hold property in their own name. They began to be able to um, uh, enter into contracts because they could vote. That obviously had a huge impact. And so in the 20th century, really, we saw a huge um, unraveling of coverture and kind of transformation to look more like what our modern marriage law looks like. I mean, people nowadays think of marriage, I think, as a, a mar uh, you know, partnership of equals. Um, and a lot of laws have been made gender neutral as between spouses. So for example, loss of consortium, as I mentioned, it originated because if a wife was injured, um, her husband would be deprived of her sexual companionship. Um, it was written in specifically gendered terms, and a lot of states didn't um, make that language gender neutral until the mid to late 20th century. Okay, so in some of our parents' lifetimes, that was changed. You know, for some of our parents, they couldn't apply for credit. If they're a wife, they couldn't apply for credit um, without their husband's approval. And, you know, that was a you know, I think um, definitely the second half of the 20th century where laws started to be passed to um, give women equal access to credit. Um, it was not a crime for husbands to have sex with their wives whenever they wanted to. And so there was no crime for spousal rape, um, for example, at common law under coverture. Um, and most states began to recognize those that crime, but still not all have. I mean, it's a very small majority that haven't, but that's an example where the revolution or evolution of marriage to be fully egalitarian is not complete. Okay. So in general, we're seeing this change over time, but you know, a lot of the um, cases that people study in 14th Amendment about um, formal sex equality and you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg using the Equal Protection Clause to kind of challenge statutes that make assumptions about husbands and wives and treat them differently. If you think about it, that was the 70s and 80s, basically, 1970s and 1980s. So it's only quite recently where um, a lot of those developments took place. I don't know if I, does that give you a sense? Is that a good answer to your question? Fairly comprehensive history of marriage. It's very interesting how the doctrine of folding the two people into one person went so far as to prevent women from even contracting with themselves because it would be interpreted as a self-contract. Same with testimony. You know, like if, if you can have a wife testify at a criminal trial, that's tantamount to the man testifying against himself, which is violates obviously the right of or principle of self-incrimination. So, so she, if she per was guilty of perjury, he would be guilty of perjury. Yes, although rarely would she be able to testify, you know, but um, so it, and it's interesting because, for example, um, you know, under coverture, because she was essentially his property, he had the ability or power to offer her moderate correction, which was the same type of discipline he could use against children and household servants. So some scholars, although this has been kind of challenged, say that the phrase rule of thumb comes from that, this idea that the husband could hit his wife with 
a stick that was no bigger than his thumb, you know, because he couldn't abuse her, but he could offer moderate discipline. You know, that was definitely allowed. And so um, we've come a long way from that, obviously. Speaking of having come a long way, um, what does it look like today, marriage? What rights flow from marriage? When two people get married, what are the special rights and protections they get? What are some of the disadvantages that they have to incur? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll say one more thing about the history. Um, it's true that the husband had all of this authority, but the law at least tried to impose obligations on him as well. Um, in that he had to provide for the family's necessaries, things like you know living expenses, food, shelter, clothing, etc. And the wife would be able to go to a store and get um, goods on his credit, you know. And so this was thought to be an advantage for the wife, at least. You know, she she is subject to his authority, but she's also pr provided for under the law. Um, and the reason I'm kind of mentioning that is because there's still this idea that marriage is a package of benefits and obligations. Um, and so there are several buckets. And so one is the, the obligations of spouses to each other. Um, and then there are, there are types of benefits that are conferred upon the married couple by the state. So um, when we talk about um, the obligations that spouses owe each other. First, they owe each other duties of support, fidelity, um, affection. These are kind of intangible duties that aren't really sued over for the most part, except courts have held that spouses are obligated to provide kind of like nursing care type support when their spouses are ill or, you know, weak. Um, and spouses are theoretically, you know, obligated to satisfy each other's sexual um, needs as well. Although obviously no court is going to enforce that duty and compel people to have sex basically. But those are actually still obligations that are theoretically in the law. But there are property obligations as well. So, you know, when people marry, the default is that um, property earned during the marriage is presumptively marital property, um, which um, is subject to equitable distribution if the parties, if the spouses ever divorce. Okay. So, you know, that's one huge thing. And um, debts, likewise, are um, thought of as marital if they're incurred during the marriage and especially if they're for things like household expenses, et cetera, then both spouses are um, jointly and severally liable for those debts. So um, those are really, I mean, if you think about it, like property and financial obligations that flow between each other, um, again, they're hard to enforce during an ongoing marriage. So, um, let's say that a wife thinks that her husband isn't providing enough for her, um, even though theoretically a lot of the property might be marital property, it would be difficult for her to get a court to micromanage the husband's spending for her benefit, basically. But if they ever divorce, that's a right that um, she would likely be able to enforce. And if you think about it, I mean, 
almost everybody's familiar with kind of high profile divorces in which, you know, millions of dollars of property are at stake. Um, you know, that's that concept applies regardless of um, the net worth of the spouses. And in fact, that's a reason why marriage is sometimes you know, an unattractive proposition for couples if they have low incomes and more debt, or if one party is financially unreliable, um, it's a risk to take on the other spouse's debts and liabilities, you know. And so that's one um, bucket, which are the rights and duties that the spouses owe each other, okay? And that hasn't changed all that much. I mean, as that, that's why I mentioned in coverture, you know, the husband was obligated to provide for the wife's necessaries. The same kind of concept applies. Um, but since the 20th century, marriage has become um, the site of a lot of valuable benefits from the government. So social security is a huge one. You know, if um, one spouse doesn't work and the other does, the non-working spouse is able to, um, you know, benefit from the uh, the working spouse's social security, either in retirement or if that spouse passes away, um, as long as the marriage was of a certain duration, you know, and that's a huge thing that can be very valuable to a surviving or former spouse who wasn't in the workforce or wasn't in the workforce for very long or wasn't in the workforce in a highly compensated job. You know, um, income tax filing at the turn of the 20th century was not um, joint or marital, but now it is. And so um, it's widely understood that if you are in a marriage where one spouse is high earning and the other spouse is lo low earning or doesn't earn any income at all, it's highly beneficial to the, that couple as opposed to, you know, in com comparison to two other people. Um, but on the other hand, if you're married and both spouses make equivalent amounts, um, they usually face a marriage penalty. So they pay more taxes than they would if they were single. So there's a little bit of social engineering that's going on along the lines of marriage that can have, that can subsidize certain types of relationships. One might call them traditional relationships with a stay at home spouse, usually a wife, you know, um, and penalize other types of relationships. But if you think about it, there's this whole apparatus that's grown up around marriage. So for example, eligibility for health care a lot of times tracks marriage um you know uh family leave you can take uh paid or unpaid leave depending on the jurisdiction to care for a spouse you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't married for example so um you know when same-sex couples couldn't marry and they were trying to marry they always used to throw around this figure that they're um a th over a thousand rights and benefits in the federal codes that turn on marriage. You know, so there are tons of examples of what we're just saying, immigration, uh, you know, if you're a spouse, you're treated differently than if you're just a partner. There are tons of ways in which the law responds to marital status and, um, you know, strengthens that um, marital status. Um, the last thing I guess I would say, although it's kind of something we take for granted, 
now is that from a historical perspective, marriage was the one place where people could legally have sexual relations, sexual contact, intimate, intimate contact, basically. The criminal law until, I mean, even now, some states still have these laws on the books, um, but really throughout half of the 20th century, made it a crime for people to cohabit without marrying. They made it a crime fornication to have sex outside of marriage. It was a crime to um, engage in adultery, adulterous conduct. And so really the only place you were allowed to legally have sex was marriage. You know, and so if you can think of that in a way as a huge benefit of the marital relationship. Another way that that was enforced was that children who were born out of wedlock were considered illegitimate. And there were kind of punitive laws preventing illegitimate children from inheriting, treating them as like a child of no one. You know, they didn't have any pa legal parents. Um, and so that's kind of historical, but you know, we see vestiges of that basically in our laws today. But so those are some of the kind of benefits and rights and legal consequences of marriage. I mean, and I'm sure there are many more that I'm just leaving off. <laughs> you spoke a little bit about how it's a advantageous for a wealthy partner to mm -hmm. be partnered with a less wealthy or no or incomeless partner for tax reasons but also that in the event of a divorce, it's disadvantageous for a wealthy partner to be partnered with someone who doesn't have any income or any assets. Given the rising income inequality we're experiencing in this country and the incentive to marry with someone who has roughly equal assets because also divorce rates are rising. So there's a, there's a potential that your marriage won't work out. There's a real disincentive to marry someone who is less wealthy, not even very much less wealthy, but it encourages you to make that calculation before committing to marriage. Does the institution of marriage, as a result, is it at risk of exacerbating income inequality by keeping all the wealth locked in the socioeconomic stratum or class that it's already in and descending and also distributing it down to the next generation that continues to have those privileges. And it could be a barrier to upward mobility. You've made the argument <laughs> quite well. So um, yes, well, a couple points along those lines. We're seeing um, a decrease in the share of the US population that is married. Um, in the 1960s, approximately 70% of all households were married households. Now that is teetering right above, like a hair above 50%. So obviously that's a tremendous decline, okay? In 1967, less than 1% of all households were cohabitants, in large part because it was you know, criminalized in some jurisdictions. And even if it wasn't a crime anymore, there was still a stigma. Well, that's obviously not the case now, and approximately 9% of households are cohabiting households, but an equal share, people think, are single households where the people are together, you know, in, in committed relationships. So that's essentially 15, 16% 
of the population that maybe one once upon a time would have been married that's now actually in a different type of family relationship okay um so we're seeing the um that marriage rates are going down um but it's not going down amongst the wealthy and well-educated and in fact um, you know, there was a lot of news about divorce skyrocketing in the 1980s and beyond, but divorce rates for the wealthy and well-educated are have gone down quite substantially and are quite stable at a lower rate than they had been. Um, on the other hand, divorces for the less well-educated are still more common, okay? Um, and we're also seeing exactly what you point out, that people are not marrying outside of their class and education group, okay? And so um, people have commented, you know, kind of stereotypically that we're less likely to see a doctor marry a nurse these days than a doctor marry another doctor. And I mean, you can ask, ask yourself if that corresponds to um, what you anecdotally observe. But all that means is that we have one portion of the population, the more well-educated, the wealthier, that are still marrying at similar rates that they used to. Their relationships are as successful or more successful than they were you know, a generation ago. Um, and they are being subsidized by all of those benefits that we were just talking about. On the other hand, you have a portion of the population that's ma not marrying um, as much and their relationships are more unstable. And so I do think that in a way marriage law is contributing to um, inequality basically. And it's even worse when you think about the groups who are not marrying. And of course, um, given the relationship between class and race, um, you know, a lot of those people belong to communities of color. Um, you know, so so it is not only a class-based inequality, but it's also kind of making distinctions on the basis of race and those types of demographics. Um, you know, people um, in those communities, sociologists have found, don't dislike marriage. It's not like they they're intellectually opposed to marriage. They they think marriage is good and good for society. They just don't feel economically ready to marry. Or, and so that's the link, you know, I mean, but because of policies that keep them down economically, then they can't marry, which only um, perpetuates this. Exactly. Which is exactly the dynamic you were talking about. So, yes, I think all of the research indicates that that phenomenon you've identified is present and so, um, you know, we can do one of two things. We can subject marriage to more scrutiny and ask if we want to continue to have marriage as a tool to promote those types of ends, or we can kind of <laughs> keep on going the way things are going. Do you think, given the fact that marriage is benefiting the most privileged, exacerbating income inequality, broadly in decline probably as a result of income inequality, should we get rid of marriage? Because it seems like it's a, it's socially contributing to a, a lot, although it has benefits. And I think there are reasons to encourage marriages just for a sort of a social stability point of view, like having a, a strong family unit is good for children. 
but it's contributing to a larger problem of income inequality, which is creating this huge divide between the classes that it's getting harder to bridge. Should we get rid of marriage? Well, um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about some proposals or some things we might do, but I would say that it's very unlikely. I, I mean, I'm pessimistic that marriage will change very much because, you know, as you mentioned, the people who are in power are taking advantage of this institution and are benefiting from it. And, um, you know, not necessarily in a way that's consciously trying to perpetuate inequality. So, I mean, you know, but it, so one goal might be to make people aware of it so they can at least ask themselves whether they think that it's worth it to, to continue the, on, on the path we're on, right? But as I was saying in response to your last question, um, people who don't marry also kind of venerate marriage, see marriage as a good thing, something to aspire to. So I'm not sure that there's widespread support to really change marriage that much. But um, what I will say is that there is certainly a scholarly movement to try to examine ways in which we can promote equality. Um, and, you know, there are several components. One, which was tried during the George W. Bush administration in the first decade of the 20, 21st century, is marriage promotion. You know, that was sort of a conservative, religiously influenced effort to just get more people to marry. But of course it didn't solve the underlying economic problems. So it really wasn't successful. Just kind of encouraging people spending money to promote it didn't really have that much of an impact. Um, so, but that was, was and remains one um, way to solve the problem is just to try to get more people at every level to benefit from marriage, right? Um, another approach is to try to strengthen non-marital families. So maybe you say to yourself, well, we can't, um, can't or won't touch marriage because it's too sacred to us. But what if we can try to give more benefits to people outside of marriage? I mean, universal basic income and universal health care are examples of, um, initiatives that if adopted might level the playing field a little bit um, and also put people in a better position to be able to kind of formalize their relationships if they want, or at least not penalize them if they don't, right? So that's one thing. Um, another way you could do that is to give cohabitants more of the rights that married people get. Um, and the last thing you could do is to try to disaggregate marriage a little bit. And people have definitely started to study that. So for example, health insurance, um, you know, we might make it universal because for whatever other reason, but a, another thing we could do is just stop um, making it tied, tying it to the mar marital status, for example. You know, um, lots of people have proposed that social security should be based on households or individuals and not um, marriage. You know, um, same thing for tax filing. Um, you know, there's some marital rights like inheritance where it does kind of make sense just on a practical level to continue to have that right tied to marriage. But other of them, especially a lot of the government benefits. I think, you know, there's 
a big push to see whether those really belong to people who are married or to individuals or just to people in caring relationships. And unless there's a compelling justification for marriage in particular, then the idea is to disaggregate those things. Now, I don't think that if the state were to abolish married, married income tax filing, that would trigger any constitutional concerns. You know, I don't, the right to marry doesn't consist of any given package of federal and state rights and obligations. So it seems clear to me that we would be able to kind of unbundle marriage to quite an extent without, you know, running into any of those types of concerns. And that may very well be the best way to go about doing it. It's interesting that you bring up universal basic income and universal health care. I seem to be hearing more and more these days about how universal basic income would basically just lift the floor for everyone by, by the exact same amount. And it would benefit the poorest the most because in proportion to their small income, a, a X amount of universal basic income would, you know, be in relation to that income significantly more than a larger income, though everyone's getting it. I mean, I'm not a, an economist or an expert in that, so I have to leave it to the experts. But, you know, I think we saw because of COVID um, and stimulus payments, um, I, I, it gives people who know better a lot of material to study in terms of what were the impacts of that and how would that help all families, basically. And we saw, um, you know, Biden had a proposal and Romney had a proposal for providing more support for children, for example, and it remains to be seen what passes, but um, it's, it can, I guess in some instances, it's a bipartisan instinct, you know, and we'll see what comes of it. And again, that's not my expertise. I mean, healthcare, the idea that it turns on marriage is itself a strange thing, you know, like, illness and vulnerability, health-related vulnerability, don't turn on whether you're married or single. And um, even when many more people married, there's still periods in which people are single, you know, because their spouse dies before they do, or the period before they get married. I mean, like, it's not like... Um, health turns on marital status. I mean, you can't make that claim. And so it's just odd in the first place that um, those two things became so closely linked because there's no inherent linkage between whether you're married and whether you need healthcare. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so given that we're tending towards fewer marriages as a proportion of all relationships, more cohabitations with no legal recognition, I was reading about uh, marital property today, how apt that the marital property reading came this morning. Um, and I was wondering if maybe this, the situation of a breakup of a cohabitative relationship that had significant investment from both parties would be an example of where there, there may be some, a need for reform or legislation in this area. I considered the possibility that a cohabitative relationship that was long lasting, not legally recognized and involved significant investment and shared property between both parties um, 
might in the event of a breakup result in one of the parties, if they're ignorant of the legal remedies they could be entitled to, they may end up with a sort of disproportionate forfeiture situation where they don't they don't recoup the appropriate amount of investment they put into the relationship. Because when you're in a marriage and you get divorced, you pretty much have to consult a lawyer and someone who knows the law. And there needs to be an equitable divvying up of the property when there's a divorce. But when there's no legal recognition of the relationship in the first place, there's no process to go through. And if you don't know that you have a claim or you could have a court divvy up your your property that you shared with someone else, then that could be an instance where people in cohabitative relationships are left with a huge portion of their property with someone else. And they've, they have no idea, they had no idea or would never have known that they could have gotten it back through a legal proceeding. Um, can you talk a little bit about this concept called palimony, which um, came out in the 1970s? Yeah. So um, it's critical to note that if you're not married, um, you don't have any legal rights, um, <laughs> except those that you might create by contract, um, except in a, a small, small, small handful of states, like the state of Washington is an exception, um, where if you live in a committed intimate relationship, which is kind of like a marriage-like relationship, the court might divide up the property by applying marriage marital property type rules to you, but that's one state, you know? So, um, so basically, um, the idea is if you want to have the whole bundle of rights, you marry. And if you, you know, if you don't marry, you're, you're technically single, right? Um, remember or recall that there was a time until not too long ago where, if you cohabited outside of marriage, you would be a criminal. I mean, that was a crime, right? But um, so arguably we're in a better position than that. Like no state actively enforces those types of laws anymore, but um, you don't have any automatic legal rights. And so you could live together in a long-term relationship and end up with nothing. Um, and the situation you describe where both, both partners are contributing property it's sort of easier to untangle um, than um, a situation where it resembles a traditional marriage, but they're not actually married. So there's this kind of famous case called Hewitt versus Hewitt from Illinois, in which this woman and man and woman kind of were together in college. Um, the woman, they wanted to, she wanted to get married. He said, oh, we don't need to do that. This is as good as married, whatever. He became, you know, relatively financially successful, like a dentist or doctor or something. They had kids together. They had this long relationship. And at the end of it, he essentially said there, you don't have any rights to anything. Like all of this property that we acquired or I acquired during our relationship. It's in my name, it's titled in my name, I made that money. Um, and she tried to say that there was an implied contract in the way that they lived their life. And the court said, no, there's nothing. So she just got nothing. So arguably that's an even worse situation than when two partners are combining, you know, because combining presumes that they each 
have something to contribute. Where in that egregious situation, she really com- contributed domestic labor, but had no nothing economically to contribute. Um, okay, so the law in the vast majority of states is, and this is what palimony refers to, is that people can enter into enforceable contracts regarding property, even if they aren't married. And that can extend to kind of support after the relationship ends, which is where the palimony comes in, because it's like alimony for non-married people. Um, And so that was form, kind of famously announced in this case called Marvin versus Marvin, California, 1976. Um, And most states adopted some form of it, although some states require that it be, uh, the contract be in writing. Some states require that even if it's not in writing, it can be, it must be expressed. California said it could be implied by conduct. Now, um, almost nobody prevails on these contract claims like an implied contract claim, almost nobody prevails, (laughs) you know. So in Marvin versus Marvin, the woman argued that she gave up her career, her lucrative career as a singer and entertainer to kind of be like a wife to Lee Marvin, who was a Hollywood actor. And he agreed that he would support her kind of like a spouse. And, you know, she even changed her last name to Marvin, et cetera. Well, the court said that that conduct didn't infer a promise because the terms weren't sufficiently definite, okay? Um, A recent study by a University of Arizona professor and my friend Albertina Antonini found that almost no courts enforce even express contracts. They find some reason to kind of doubt the validity of even an express contract that exchanges domestic services for property. So um, the one exception is that when both parties contribute tangible assets, sort of in the way you're describing, usually they're allowed to disentangle that in a contract case and get what they want. Now, all of that presumes, as you were saying, that they know they can, there's no divorce, right? There's no status-based legal proceeding, which is a benefit in a sense, if you don't want the court involved in your business. But Um, The only way you enforce these rights is through a civil action, a contract action. Um, And so most of those actions fail. And I did a study of over two years of cases and published or reported databases, which don't include every case. So, for example, most state trial courts are not in Westlaw, you know, Um, but that study found in over a two year period, there were under 200 cases in which people were bringing any sort of claim based on a cohabiting relationship. Now we know there are, you know, millions, tens of millions of cohabiting relationships. And so clearly hundreds of thousands must be ending every year. So the fact that there were under 200 cases in a two year period, so under hundred per year, just goes to prove the point that most people don't realize that they have a claim or, you know, these claims are not prevailing, basically. And so, essentially, if you don't marry, you don't get any of those types of protections. And, by the way, if you've been living in this relationship, let's say for a decade, you've been missing out on all of these benefits that married people get, 
you know, like if the tax filing would have been favorable, you're missing out on that. You know, like if your partner died suddenly, you would be missing out on benefits related to that, you know, for social security or otherwise. If your partner is killed in an accident right in front of your eyes, you have no standing to bring a tort claim like you would if it were your spouse. So, so yeah, that those relationships don't have legal protections um, and they often end up just with one of the parties being seriously kind of disadvantaged to where they would be if they married. The counter argument though, and I think it's a serious argument is um, that at least some of those people don't wanna be married. Now, um, you know, especially before same-sex couples could, could marry, it, it seemed particularly egregious and exclusionary, but now that those types of restrictions are not present, it's given kind of ammo, ammunition to the people who just say, well, if you wanted those rights, you should marry. But, and of course I would note, not everybody can marry. People in plural relationships can't marry. People who can't, they can't marry their first cousins in Arizona, you know, I mean, not everybody can marry. And then of course, as we're talking about, some people feel economically precluded from marrying as well. But, um, you know, there are definitely some people in non-marital relationships where part of the reason they're not marrying is because they don't want the law involved in their relationship. Thanks for coming on the show, Professor Matsumura. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation. I hope people um, didn't fall asleep and are more and more interested in studying um, families. And, you know, obviously marriage is only one small piece of family relationships. So there's more. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to email me at asulawradio at gmail.com.